AviationPros.com is the portal website for AMT, airport business, and ground support worldwide magazines. Visit daily for breaking news, industry blogs, and insightful articles from our magazine's editorial team. And don't forget to sign up for our publication's daily e-newsletters. It's all at AviationPros.com. Hello and welcome to the Aviation Pros Podcast. I'm Josh Smith, editor of Ground Support Worldwide, and today we're speaking with Brent Shedd, CEO at Zing Robotics, to learn more about the autonomous ground support equipment his company is developing. Brent, thanks for your time and willingness to share some insight on emerging technologies. Good to be here. Thanks, Josh. Well, I'd like to start by talking about autonomous vehicles in general. When it comes to autonomous vehicles aiding ground support operations, I understand a key factor is that an airport is a closed environment. And because of that, it provides a little bit more control over the movements on the ramp and taxiways and effectively removes some of the factors that might be encountered by a self-driving vehicle on public roads. So with that in mind, what challenges still remain when it comes to autonomous technology being broadly adopted in the airport environment? Uh, well, so that, that's a, a great question. Um, a, a lot of it has to do with what you're asking the autonomous vehicle to do, right? So today, when you think about autonomous vehicles, you've got vehicles that either exist solely in the outside environment, or you have vehicles that exist completely on the inside environment. Uh, and when you look at the capabilities that are required on the tarmac, certainly of a, of a multi-mission kind of multi-application vehicle, you need that vehicle to be able to transition from outdoors to indoors to back outdoors uh, seamlessly. So that's a capability that that doesn't uh, that isn't readily available today and has to be designed for. Uh, and that certainly that has been uh, a, a design challenge for us uh, that we've been uh, working with and, and thankfully overcoming. Uh, but that that's that's certainly one of them. Uh, and, and I think from another standpoint. It's, you know, the tarmac is an environment that hasn't really seen uh, significant technological advancement in like 50 years. When you're working in that kind of an environment, you have a lot of factors at play, right? You have a very strong safety culture, which makes total sense, right? Because unlike on the street, if your autonomous vehicle goes awry, it might hit a $20,000, vehicle. On the tarmac, if your vehicle goes awry, it's going to hit a $110 million <laughs> vehicle, right? So, you know, the stakes are a lot higher. Um, and you also have a lot of uh, personnel on the tarmac who are, you know, they need to be able to communicate with these vehicles, understand what's happening with these vehicles. Uh, they need to, th- this is this is new um, for them. And so, and that's certainly, you know, we can talk about, happy to talk about our, our approach to that, but essentially we're, we're looking at this more from, we're designing coworkers versus just vehicles that, uh, you know, that kind of do their own thing and you can't, you can't communicate with them in any way because we don't see that as a successful approach to the tarmac. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the uh, personnel aspect of it, because I think there is a a fear out there that advanced technology kind of equates to jobs being eliminated. But uh, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you don't see it that way. So 
I guess, what type of work can be done by autonomous vehicles and what tasks must still be carried out by the humans working in tandem with the technology? Yeah, that's a great question. So when, when you think about the tarmac, you know, the tarmac is not a terribly um, human-friendly environment, right? You're dealing with a lot of inclement weather. You're dealing with jet fumes. You're dealing with you know, lightning strikes. You're dealing with a lot of elements that, that are, quite frankly, hazardous to humans. Um, and you're also dealing with a lot of the same things that I talked about you know, a few minutes earlier around the margin for error is, is very uh, thin, right? So in, in environments where rules and regulations are necessary, um, those are environments where we as humans just don't tend to perform extremely well. Um, we're free spirits, you know. <laughs> we, do, we do unpredictable things, um, and we don't always even understand why we do unpredictable things. It's just within our nature. So over the past 50 years, we've tried to layer rule and regulation on top of one another to, to try and limit that kind of havoc and chaos that happens on the tarmac. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about the $10 billion of, of damage and injuries uh, and, and, and uh, delays that are caused by incidents on the tarmac, right, which are entirely attributable to human operators. Because we're really bad at driving the speed limit. We're really bad at staying within the lines. We're really bad at, at doing these kind of mundane, predictable tasks, we, we're creative entities. So we cut the lines. We, we turn the corner. Uh, we, we, our attention gets distracted. Those are things that robots don't do. Uh, robots always drive the speed limit. Robots always stop at the stop sign. They, they're never distracted. So by handing those tasks off to the robots to do the things that the robots do better than we do, it frees us up as, you know, workers on the tarmac to focus on the higher level, uh, you know, operations and being able to do our jobs better. None of us want to sit out in the rain on the tarmac just getting drenched, but the robots don't mind. <laughs> so so let's let Let's let the robots do the stuff that they can do better than we can, and it will free us up. We view autonomy as a force multiplier for the humans. It's going to make the humans' work environment better. It's going to allow the humans to operate at a higher level of execution for the airline or for the airport, and it's going to just make the entire experience for the humans better. But to do that, we've got to design these, these robots as co-workers, not robot overlords. That is, that's not an acceptable approach to us. So designing in communication between the humans and the robots is super important and is, uh, you know, very top of the list for our company. I see. And uh, in, in researching your company, I saw that you're, you're working with uh, what you call level four autonomy. And can you help us un better understand um, what these different levels of autonomous technology are? You know, are there e commonplace examples of levels one, two, three, and four that 
we might see on a daily basis and you know which levels of autonomy can specifically provide an advantage to the ground support industry yeah it's a commonly um misunderstood um you know, factor in the in the world of autonomy. Uh, SAE has put out these different levels of autonomy, but uh, you know, and and you know, technically there's a level zero. Um, but you know, when when you start to like level one, level two, level three, the best way to think about that is you know, a, a level one slash level two is getting into the cruise control that you've experienced in a car for you know, uh, many years now, decades, right? Um, you don't, you, it requires your full attention. When you put on cruise control, you don't, you don't divert your attention from anything. It just allows you to take your foot off the gas pedal, right? But you've got to be fully present the whole time. Um, and as you experience, I don't know, you know, how familiar many people are with the capabilities in a Tesla, but even even Tesla's autopilot is really just a level two autonomy system, right? Because you've got to be fully present and willing to take control of the vehicle at any point in time because the vehicle may make a wrong choice it, or, or its sensors might not read the environment correctly. And so it, the expectation is on you, the driver, that you are fully present, that you are fully, you know, uh, paying attention. And it, it's all about cognitive load, right? So by the system uh, handling, you know, monitoring the distance between your car and the car in front of you, and, you know, I'm referring to kind of their smarter cruise control um, function, that takes a little bit of the cognitive load off of you when you're driving. Level three is a step above that, where the vehicle is able to, in limited environments, drive completely autonomously, and I'm talking about without even a safety driver, but yet there are areas where it has to stop because it can't, it can't proceed further, right? So a good example would be uh, an autonomous uh, baggage tractor that is able to drive out on the tarmac uh, by itself, but when it approaches the bag room, where now it's time to go inside and it's a much more constrained environment, it's a much more chaotic environment, the vehicle has to stop and somebody's got to get in and take over and drive that vehicle into the baggage room. Or uh, another example is when it's approaching the plane, the vehicle you know, can only go up so close to the plane before it has to stop, a human has to get in and drive it the rest of the way up to the plane itself. So that's a that's an example of level three autonomy. Level four autonomy is you don't need the driver to get in for any of those circumstances. The vehicle can drive up into the bag room, from the bag room to the plane, et cetera, without a human. But that's not attributable to all environments. And you spoke about this earlier when you talked about the airport being you know, an ideal environment for autonomous vehicles. And, and you're right, it is, because it's well-marked, it's geofenced, it's well-maintained. All of these factors stack up um, for the, the adoption and the use case of autonomy. And that's where we can build level four autonomous vehicles because we have those factors in our advantage that, that help us build that level four system. 
building a level four system for uh, a street going vehicle is different, right? Because you're not in a geofenced environment and there's all kinds of, you know, uh, maintenance issues and, and random pedestrians that ride their bike out in front of your car and all this other kind of stuff. So there, you know, there, there are differences between road going in tarmac and, you know, we're, we're focusing on the tarmac so we can operate at a higher level of autonomy. Uh, that's very interesting. So, uh, let's take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, uh, we're going to have more with Brent Shedd and Autonomous Technology. Would you like to reach key decision makers in the industry? Share your message on the Aviation Pros podcast and reach key leaders across all facets of aviation, including aircraft maintenance, airports, FBOs, airlines, and ground handling. Contact one of Aviation Pros' helpful account representatives to find out more. We're back with Brent Shedd, and now that we've had the opportunity to discuss the technology itself, uh, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the specific autonomous equipment being developed by Zing Robotics. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Zing Robotics had previously provided autonomy retrofit kits. So what prompted the decision to move towards developing natively autonomous vehicles instead of you know, uh, supplying those retrofit kits? Great question. Um, retrofit kits are, ha- have always been, and I, and I think this is the, you would get the same answer from any autonomous vehicle company. Retrofit kits are only meant to be a bridge to natively autonomous vehicles, right? Because vehicles, standard OEM vehicles, and it doesn't matter whether these are, you know, uh, a consumer vehicle or whether it's a, a standard piece of GSE. They're designed for human operators. And you can only, that, that places a very logical and natural limit on what you can do uh, when you turn that into a fully autonomous vehicle. Largely because you've wasted a bunch of space <laughs> designing this vehicle for human operation. Um, but, but it's not just that, right? It's also other circumstances like performance uh, capabilities and that kind of stuff, but um, that's, that's for a separate conversation. But the point is every autonomous vehicle company realizes that to really get the most benefit out of an autonomous vehicle, that vehicle you know, needs to be uh, natively autonomous. It needs to be built and designed for fully autonomous operation without having to take into consideration any of the requirements of a, of a human operator. And when I say operator, I, I'm talking about somebody actually being there, that I'm, I'm not referring to the ability for a human to take control of that vehicle, because there are actions like teleoperation, there are actions like, you know, um, human-to-vehicle communication where the, the human isn't actually in the vehicle or on the vehicle, but it is communicating with the vehicle and controlling that vehicle through a, you know, a communication um, method. So that's, that's why we uh, are transitioning from retrofits to a natively autonomous system because by doing so, we're able to build this electric autonomous platform that has 
multifunctional capabilities, you know, it's configurable for uh, the mission that you need it to do. Um, and, and as a result, it's, you know, one vehicle is able to replace many of the existing mission-specific ground service equipment vehicles, um, which is, you know, brings all kinds of benefits for the, uh, for the airline or, or the airport or the cargo operator. Uh, because it, it, it lowers your operating footprint and completely changes your cost structure. Um, it's obviously has huge benefits for the environment because, you know, one of our electric, you know, autonomous uh, vehicles can replace multiple diesel polluting uh, ground service equipment vehicles. Um, so there's there's all kinds of benefits for the planet, for the workforce, for the, the airlines themselves, um, all wrapped into, a, you know, the approach that we're taking. I see. So, yeah. So, uh, speaking of, you know, the individual pieces of ground, su ground support equipment, you know, and the functions available, you know, which pieces of ground support equipment is your company automating to assist with handling operations? Great question. So, um, as I mentioned, we're you know, we, we've engineered this electric, what we call an EGSE platform. And that platform is configurable for different missions. It, it you know, you can, you can place different um, pods on top of the platform for specific, uh, you know, functionality. But um, even a, a single uh, configuration so, for instance, a, a GPU configuration where the, the vehicle itself has the, the power on board to, uh, to act as a ground power unit for a 747 or for whatever kind of aircraft you have, that vehicle can also act as a baggage or cargo tug. It can also act as a bobtail. It can also act as a pushback. It can also act as a, as a FOD, you know, detection and clearance. Um, it can function in a security profile. It can function as a maintenance vehicle. I mean, it is a, it's an exhaustive list, but, but the, the, the point I'm trying to get across is that this is, a, this is an inflection point for the tarmac where we're no longer talking about mission-specific vehicles. When, when, you, when you've got a vehicle that is, for instance, a pushback tractor, right? These are expensive vehicles, and on average, their utility is, you know, I use this vehicle for 10 minutes um, a few times a day. Uh, in, from, from our perspective, that is a function or a feature of a vehicle, not a vehicle itself. So that's why we're de we designed this platform, so that a single vehicle can, can handle that pushback function but then when it's not being required for pushback, it's pulling, you know, uh, um, baggage or it is clearing thought on the tarmac or it's, it's acting as a bobtail. Like there's, there's no reason why we have to have so many GSE units on the tarmac. We need to be lowering that footprint and, you know, that's the only way we're going to achieve both sustainability goals but also operational uh, we're going to lower our operational costs. Sure. So if we're talking about kind of the the operational load of one of these vehicles and its ability to handle kind of multiple functions on the ramp, um, how, 
I understand that the um, the vehicle is um, an electric vehicle and it utilizes you know lithium ion batteries. Uh, is there a specific benefit that lithium ion provides the vehicles, especially as it pertains to carrying out several functions and, and kind of being in operation throughout the day? Uh, there, there are. Um, the the lithium ion is uh, it's scalable in terms of the way that you know we're designing the battery packs. Um, so we can build the the batteries for the use cases that are required. But most importantly is this this you know GSC platform that we've engineered. The batteries are swappable which means that you can take these batteries and you can charge them during off-peak hours, which helps the, you know, with the electricity bill for the, for the airline at the airport. Um, but it's also the case that these vehicles are bidirectional on their power. So the vehicles themselves can start to help manage, you know, load balancing uh, for the electricity requirements of the, uh, you know, of the, um, the airline or the the airport itself. So the but but lithium ion is important from a um, just from a um, power density and and longevity for the vehicle uh, itself because these these vehicles are designed for literally 24/7 operation, and so you know lithium ion is critical in terms of our ability to uh, design for that swappable nature and uh, give us that uptime that is that's required. Uh, again, going back to the the fact that we're targeting a you know a, a new reality where you have many fewer GSE pieces on the tarmac. The pieces that are there, the units that are there have to be operating at a higher level and, and for a, you know, a, a greater uptime than the pieces that exist today because those are all very mission specific and they get used you know, far less frequently than these vehicles will be. See, when you swap out the batteries, uh, how, how much time is required to get a, a battery that's nearly depleted charged back up to 100%? Well, it depends on the size of the battery uh, and you know, the the charging capabilities are obviously they're they're changing on a on a regular basis if you if you track that technology right, um, and it also depends on whether you're using inductive charging where the the robot simply drives over an inductive plate and it's charging through that ability or whether you're using the the plug-in uh, direct method. So the the charging profile can be everything from you know, a few hours to, you know, a, a longer time period, a four to six hour time period. But again, because you've got the, the swappable capabilities and we've designed this, this platform so you can swap out these batteries in literally like less than a minute. It's, it's a very fast um, uh, action to, to swap out the batteries. The, the design has been um, engineered so that you are charging your batteries on off-peak hours, and so you're, you're keeping your costs in line. You're, you're actually kind of baselining your costs as much as you can because you're using power that was actually stored, 
you know, in the middle of the night or, or you know, whatever your, your off-peak hours are, uh, and you're using that power during your, your peak hours. I see. Well, uh, how about um, the software that's required um, for Zing Robotics ground support op uh, ground support equipment to operate autonomously? Um, you know, what's required there, and is this a do you have a proprietary software that you use, or uh, do you partner with another company to to handle the uh, kind of the back end of the the process? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, this is uh, <laughs> no autonomous vehicle is an island unto itself. Uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of parties at play. Um, so we, our kind of core AV stack um, is comes from the uh, the AutoWare Foundation, which is an open source autonomy stack. Uh, and the you know that is a critical. Um, operating element to us. We're a premium member of the AutoWare Foundation. And so we work very, very closely with them uh, to develop that AV stack. Um, we will have modifications to that stack uh, going, you know, going forward specific to our use case. But we're also, we, we also have this uh, methodology or, or approach, which is, you know, we are not interested in redesigning the wheel. So if there are software, if there's software that's already in place uh, with our customers, largely airlines, cargo operators, um, there, we, we don't want to recreate that, right? This is software that they already know. This is software they're already familiar with using. There's no reason why we should try to introduce uh, a new platform and have to turn around and train people and everything else. So we partner with companies like Inform. Uh, which has a, a fleet management and a dispatching uh, software that airlines are already familiar and comfortable with. Uh, we work very closely with them to uh, use that software for the dispatching of our own vehicles. Um, and we take that approach with every other aspect of, uh, of our build and, and the operational profile for our platform. Uh, so it's, it's definitely not a... Uh, zing and only zing approach uh we're we're good partners we like to think that we're good partners uh for our software providers uh and there is a lot of proprietary uh, systems involved but um there's also a lot of partnership that's involved yeah very good and, and maybe the the biggest question i have for you in this uh, conversation is uh, you know when when will we see zing robotics autonomous ground support equipment available to the market Yes. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, our, we will be uh, showing a, a roller of the EGSC platform uh, at the GSC Expo coming up here in Las Vegas this October. We're excited to be able to show that. Uh, and then we're, we will be uh, rolling out the uh, prototype of the platform uh, that following year and signing up um, proofs of concept with the prototype at that point. So it's, it will be happening very quickly uh, and uh, we will be, you know, happily sharing that progress uh, as we, as we go. Terrific. Well, uh, this has been a, a really interesting topic. Uh, I think 
broadly as autonomous GSE. Um, but even uh, I really like getting to some of the specifics uh, with you about uh, some of the plans Zing Robotics has uh, for this segment of the industry as well. Uh, but that's going to do it for this edition of the Aviation Pros podcast. I'd like to again thank our guest, Brent Shedd, and if you'd like to learn more about his company's efforts to enhance ground operations with autonomous equipment, visit zingrobotics.com. And for more information about GSE advancements and the latest technologies used in the ground handling industry, consider subscribing to Ground Support Worldwide's Product and Equipment Weekly and Technology Report newsletters and continue to visit aviationpros.com.